not, I invite you to turn with me once again to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Two weeks ago when I preached from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, um, I did not plan to continue to be preaching from 1 Thessalonians uh, here two weeks later. Um, but as I was studying this week, and um, I'll tell you a little bit about what I was studying even, was um, just the dynamic of, of how the Lord's called us to live for Him, both with our body and with our mind. And we see that in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that we would be looking to how we might present our bodies as a living sacrifice unto the Lord, but also that we might be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So we have engagement both with our body and with our minds in how we live for the Lord. And as I was studying that, and as I was kind of thinking through those things and kind of following after the Scriptures along those lines, I found myself right back here in 1 Thessalonians, right where we left off last week. Um, so bear with me here uh, as we look to the Scriptures here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. It says, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort them that are feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient towards all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the Spirit. Despise not prophesies. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. And we will stop our reading there at verse 22 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We've seen over the last couple of weeks how Paul was encouraging the Christians here at Thessalonica concerning the return of Christ, concerning the expected return and the expected second coming of our Lord Jesus. And at the conclusion of, of that, of that encouragement, he hits verse 12 and he says, we beseech you, brethren. He is making a plea He's pleading with his brothers and sisters at the church at Thessalonica concerning the Christian life and the things that we read here in these ten verses. And he tells them first to know them. The idea there is to appreciate them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. He's saying that you should have an appreciation for the leaders that God has set up for you spiritually. He's talking about the leaders in the church. It's awkward for me to say, but he's talking about me. He's saying to have an appreciation for the leaders in the church. Why? Because the instruction that they are providing in their work is for your good. It is for your sakes that they would labor. It is for your sakes that they would do the things that they do. And he says that you would have an appreciation for them and an appreciation for the instruction that they provide to you. For the admonishment that they would provide. He says, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace 
among you. Now, when we think about this, I think sometimes it's challenging for a pastor to be able to preach about things concerning uh, concerning the pastorate or concerning being a pastor. And I don't want to labor too much in these two verses today because my thought is really later in this text. But I do want to encourage you to consider the connection that Paul is making when he is telling the people that they should look with love and esteem upon those that have a order or have a leadership role in the church. He is saying that you might be at peace among yourselves. Did you catch that? You're rightly appreciating and esteeming and love the leaders that the Lord has placed over you spiritually in the church is what enables and allows peace to reign amongst the people. It is good that there is this order. You've heard me talk about it before, about how God is such an order in all things. We see order in life. We see an order in how He has set and how He has designed the home. And we see an order in how He has set up the church. That there would be an order even to our worship. God has ordered these things. And as a result of that, He is saying it is for your good that you would live at peace together and having an esteem and appreciation for those that are, that are, are leaders of the church. Now, I want to say something about this. I'm going to say more about this as we go along. But I know that there are times in which you are, are frustrated, there's something that's been said or done or, or not said or not done that, that concerns you. And you have a question or a difficulty or a problem with that which is at leadership in the church. Now I want you to know that that's okay. I want you to know that's okay for two reasons. Number one, that you are your own unique person. You are different than I am. You're different than the leaders that the Lord has set up in the church. And so there's going to be that natural conflict that happens. But I also want you to know that that's okay because the leadership is by themselves fully human, and like that, they are tending or have that tendency to be at fault and to fail. And so it's natural to have those occasions where you are frustrated or wondering or questioning that which is is being done by a leader in a church. But I want to encourage you in this. When you have that frustration, don't tell anyone else until you've told that person. You go to that leader first. And you talk to them about it. Because nine times out of ten, you're going to resolve it right then and there. And if you don't, and if instead you go and tell others about it, this piece that Paul's talking about, it gets fractured. It gets messed up. It gets destroyed. And so the encouragement that I, I want to encourage you to is that when you have those frustrations, go and talk to those older brothers, those older sisters among you, those that you look to as, as leadership in your spiritual lives, those leaders that the Lord has placed in the church. Go to them and talk to them and bring that to their awareness because I can almost guarantee and promise you that that would not be their intention, that there would be some frustration that would be caused in your life. But instead that you would go out of, out of love and out of esteem like Paul has talked about here. Now again, I don't want to go too long here. But I do want to say this. That leaders aren't off the hook in these things. Scripture clearly teaches that those that God has placed in, in charge over His flocks will be held accountable for those flocks. 
I want you to know personally, and I think this is good for Faith Church to hear from me, the pastor here at Faith Church, that I go to sleep and I wake up every morning in fear of the judgment of God for my actions as your pastor. I fear His judgment much more so than I fear yours. And so it is necessary and it is good and it is altogether helpful there to be that relationship that when there are those things that you find concerning or frustrating or challenging that you come and you get those things taken care of without spreading seeds of discord amongst the brothers and the sisters. So I want to encourage you to that today. And again, I don't want to spend too, too much time here. But I do want to say this. I think I've said that three times now. I don't want to spend too much time here, but I want to say this. But if you just might give me a point of, of liberty to say this. I love each of you so very much. There have been very few moments in my life that have taken my breath away. When I first saw my wife as she walked down the aisle, we were getting married. When my children were born, each one of them for different reasons took my breath away. And then the week after Faith Church called me to pastor, and I was, had already been assured by the Lord that I needed to be here. But I was sitting at my desk at my little cubicle at the time up at my office at work. And I was just kind of praying about it throughout the day. And all of a sudden, when the Lord just just threw that burden so heavy upon my heart for the work here, I'm not lying to you. I can take you back to that place today where I was left doubled over in my chair with my breath leaving me because of my love for the work here with this people. So I want you to know that I love you. My hope for you, my desire for you is to see you to grow and flourish in your walk with the Lord Jesus. My hope for you is that you would be able to grow so close to Christ that you just see Him living out of you day to day. And that as a result of that, that your friends and your loved ones are so impacted by you that they're brought to repentance and they find salvation for themselves and they're able to grow and prosper in the work of the Lord as well. I tell you that to tell you this. The charge that Paul gives the Thessalonians from here on out is coming from the heart of a pastor. And so he's admonishing them things that he is concerned about, that he sees as critically important. So when we think about these types of things, when we think about how it is that we would exhort, as Paul goes on here in verse 14, he says, Now we exhort you, brethren, to warn them that are unruly. And we will consider how we would do that, how we bring an admonishment to one that has left discipline or who is undisciplined, one who has find themselves to be absent of, of finding themselves in subjection unto the Lord, those who have cast off restraints and are unruly how we would warn them. How would we go to them? I want you to know that probably one of the most challenging and difficult aspects of the Christian life, especially within the body of Christ in the church, is to do just this. Is to warn them that are unruly. I think it's that way for a couple of reasons. Is that when we would go to somebody, we see this big reason for concern about how we would do it. I think that the challenge is that giving a warning is difficult to give and receiving a warning is difficult to receive. 
or typically what we see when we would go to somebody and warn them about what we would see in their life or admonish them about the things that they are doing, the human reaction is to try to justify your own actions. It's to try to say why it is that you are doing or what it is that you are thinking or your lifestyle is okay. That's the human reaction to to defend yourself. It is not to receive that warning out of love or out of of admonishment or, or from an honest heart. And so when we think about that, it becomes difficult for us to give it because we become very concerned about whether it's going to be received the right way. And so we delay and we put it off even though we know that there would be need to warn somebody. We find ourselves worried about it to the point that we don't do anything at all. I'm not preaching to you. I know I'm preaching to myself. We do this, don't we? We find ourselves to delay the warning because of fear of how the warning is going to be received. I'm real grateful that the National Weather Service doesn't do that with tornado warnings, aren't you? We don't want to issue the tornado warning because we're worried about how the people that are in the path of their tornado are going to receive it. What if we tell them that there's going to be a tornado coming and it doesn't come? Well, then I think the people are going to be all right with that. Don't you? I'm glad that they issue the warnings when there's something to be warned about. Let that be encouragement to our hearts when that, that when there is something to be warned about, that we would take the time to go and to issue the warning. Because if we don't, those things which require the warning, what inevitably happens is the tornado comes and it leaves a path of destruction in its wake. And so warnings then are good. And it's good for us to be able to to challenge, to go forward with those things as we would look to how we might give a warning. Let me talk for a moment to those who would receive a warning. When someone comes to you with a warning, when someone comes to me with a warning, it is right to assume that they are right in their warning. You hear me? It is good for you to assume that that person is correct when they come to you to warn you about your being unruly. I teach that to my children. Maverick, what you're doing is going to get hurt. Why, Dad? I don't need you to understand right now why. I just need you to stop doing it. I will tell you why once you are out of harm's way. I don't need him to understand. I need him to assume that I'm right. And we'll understand it together after he gets out of harm's way. Now some might say, well, Derek, that, that just seems like a cruel way of doing things. That's one thing for you, one, one reason for you to do that with, uh, for your children. That's another thing for you to do that all together with, with another adult. There have been times in my life where good brothers, good sisters have bought, brought to me a warning. And I've been left to assume that they are right. And I want you to know that I think just about without fail, I've gone home and I prayed about it and I took my Bible out and I began to, to pray about the situation and study about the situation in my Bible. And my assumption that they were right proved out to be correct. That they were right. It takes a lot of courage to issue a warning to somebody. It takes a lot of love and desire for somebody to issue that warning. So as a result of that, for that warning to go out has been done with a a depth of assurance in that person's heart that the warning is right. 
And so it's good then for you to receive that, but not merely to receive it at word, but to make an assumption and then go and prove it out in the Word of God. So if you think that somebody has said something to you that has, that has made you feel uneasy as they've criticized some action of yours, take it up with the book first. See what the book says about if you're, they're right or if you're right. And then you're able to win over your brother because if they're wrong, now you've been able to help them according to the Word of God. Are you getting this? There's some warnings I'm going to make here in a minute. But I want to make to you. It's going to be necessary for you to receive them out of love. It's going to be necessary that I give them to you out of love. But ultimately what I want you to do, I'm going to get ahead of myself just a little bit, is what Paul admonished the Thessalonians to do, is to prove all things. Go and see for yourself if it's true in the Word of God. Go and see for yourselves the things that, that an older brother, an older sister would bring to you as a warning. Those that would have leadership over you would bring as a warning to you. Go and see for yourself whether or not these things are true. What did the woman at the well say? When she was left to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, she went back to town and she said, come and see a man who has told all that I've ever done. Her testimony was, come and see for yourselves. You can know him. So is our testimony to you. Come and see for yourself. Prove all things. Test whether or not it is good. I'm going to get to those warnings in a minute. Now that I have your full, full attention. I want to say one other thing about the reason why I think it is good for us to assume that the other person is right. My wife will attest to this. I hate being wrong. I hate it. I love being right. <laughs> I love being right. So when somebody brings to me something that I'm wrong about, I'm glad because I don't want to be wrong. I want to be right. So it's challenging to me to find out that I'm wrong, but I'm appreciative that they're correcting my wrong that I can be right. That's not to say that Tiffany and I still don't get into our disagreements where I'm convinced I'm right, even though she probably is. <laughs> but you see, the, the, the reality is all of us want to be found right. And so when somebody brings to you that something that's wrong, your immediate tendency is to defend that and why you're right. But instead of having that defense, welcome it instead. How it is that you might be assured that you are right. We're going to get more into these things as we keep going. I, I, I do need to hasten he keeps going and says, to comfort the feeble-minded. Now, this is probably a, a poor rendering in the King James Version. What he is really saying is to encourage those who are faint-hearted, encourage those who have found themselves to be discouraged and just find themselves to be overwhelmed by life. Let me tell you something about this passage. This should be the easiest of these instructions for the church to be able to act upon. Why? Because I promise you today that in a gathering of this size, there is someone here that is discouraged right now. There is someone older here today that is discouraged about their family. I know that to be right. I've talked to you some, some of you about it. There are some of you that are middle-aged that are discouraged about getting older. 
There are some of you who are younger, young adults with, with children and things that are discouraged about how things have started out in life and finding out that it might be a little bit more than you expected it to be. There are some teenagers here today that are discouraged about their schoolwork or discouraged about their social life or discouraged about their parents telling them good things that they ought to be doing. There are some children here that are discouraged because of the worry that they see in the faces of their parents. The reality is that we all need a little bit of encouragement. Paul says to encourage the faint-hearted. Comfort those whose hearts are faint. Support those, Paul goes on, that are weak. And finally, he says to be patient toward everyone. To be patient towards everyone. Do you know how we're supposed to forgive? We're supposed to forgive as God's forgiven us. Do you know how we're supposed to love? We're supposed to love as God has loved us. You know how we should be patient? We should be patient in the same way that God is patient with us. And aren't you glad that He is? I'm so thankful that He's long-suffering. I'm so thankful that His Word is true today, that He is long-suffering towards usward, not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. I am clinging as a father of a lost daughter right now to that verse with every ounce of my being, that God would remain long-suffering, that my child can be saved. I'm so grateful for God's patience. Let us be likewise patient. We need to hear that. If you're like me, sometimes you get a little impatient. And by sometimes and a little, I mean a lot of the time and a lot impatient. Let us be patient and long-suffering as God is. I want you to know how lessons about patience are learned. I'm going to tell you this because I've learned a thing or two about patience. The lessons of patience are learned in shame. Be patient. Be long-suffering towards your weaker brother or your weaker sister. Be patient with those that have found themselves to be faint-hearted. Be patient with those that are unruly. Help them. Support them. Encourage them. And warn them. I want to say something about these things. I'm going to get to those warnings in a minute. But something that I found about all these things to be true. And I've said this a lot, and I've said it incessantly to some of you that I've talked about with this. And you've heard me say it not too long ago from this very pulpit. For us to be able to warn those that are unruly, for us to be able to encourage those that are faint-hearted, for us to be able to strengthen those that are weak, for us to be able to have patience with everyone requires us to form deep bonds of patience or excuse me deep bonds of relationships with people i like to tell you about my friend georgian you don't know her but it's a combination of georgia and jordan they were sitting next to each other last night and i went to say something i don't even remember which one i was talking to but i called her georgian because they were sitting next to each other 
After church, I encourage you to go up to Christian and ask him about Maddie's cute little pizza that she got. You see, we had a lot of fun last night with some of the young folks. And we developed and strengthened some bonds. And they developed and strengthened some bonds. And I want to keep having those times where those bonds keep getting deeper and stronger and growing. Because right now, all those things I talked about are just little bitty tidbits that I've let you in on. But I look around at all these young people and they're smiling about what we talked about because they were there and they saw it and they heard it. And it's wonderful how those bonds get expressed. And as those bonds get deep and those relationships get stronger, suddenly when they are warned about something from me or from one of these others or they are down about something, they receive encouragement. And it's easier to give and it's easier to receive and it's profitable to them. I want to talk about yesterday. As we saw things here at the church and people talking and, 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 and being able to agree with each other and, and encourage those that were discouraged about things just because people were here at the church and working on things. There needs to be so much more of that. We must deepen our bonds as God's people. It is not enough for us to declare ourselves unified because we overall get along and have a tendency to agree on general things. Unity is not tested by how often we would agree about what colors to paint a room. Our unity is tested by how deep and how strong our bonds are when we need to bring warnings to people, when we need to encourage those that are faint-hearted, when we need to strengthen those that are weak, and that we would all do all of those things with patience and love in our hearts. May our bonds as God's people grow deeper and grow stronger. I challenge you today. All of you, by 1 o'clock, 1.30, whatever time we get done with business this afternoon, you're going to be hungry. I challenge you, find a family you haven't talked to in a while and say, you want to go grab a sandwich? You'll be blessed for it. And your bond and your relationship will be strengthened forward as well. I keep talking about these things, number one, because I'm fully persuaded of it. Number two, because I believe that if we're not able to do that, that those things that we desire of the Lord, that our young folks would be able to find themselves continuing in the work of the Lord, that our lost children would be saved, that the church would be revived, that we might be able to grow and flourish in the work of the Lord, those things will be challenged and difficult or made impassable at times if we don't find ourselves to have those fibers deeply strengthened and grown in our bond of love and relationships with one another. We need more of that. Establish new bonds. Strengthen existing ones. Paul keeps going. I'm going to get to those warnings in a second. He says that no one should pay another person evil for evil. I've said this. I think not too long ago or talked to somebody about it. He was warning us or telling us that we are not to be a vengeful people. You ever heard somebody say that I don't get mad, I don't get even? Or excuse me, I don't get mad, I get even? You ever heard somebody say that? That's not a Christian ideal. God has has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. You can sleep well at night knowing the Lord is going to take care of that which has been wronged against you. He only tells you for you to desire peace amongst all that you would live amongst. If your neighbor wrongs you, I've seen neighbors wrong 
people before. As much as it is of your ability to do so, Paul told the Romans, live peaceably among all men. Repay no man evil for evil. So as we think about these things, as we start getting further into this, he says that we should follow that which is good both among yourselves and to all men. Saying that we should desire good for everybody. We should want that each one of us would have good things in our lives. That each one of us would find goodness in their lives. I already talked about the discouragement that just seems to, to, to have its way and to run rampant amongst God's people. We should desire good things for the people of God. As we think about those good things, as we think about what it is to have goodness, I think we have this typically judgmental society that has made this very difficult to desire good for one another. Why? Because when we see good in someone else's life, we try to come up with all the reasons as to why it's not good. You ever seen somebody do that? You see something good in someone else's life and you come up with all the reasons why it's not good. Well, they shouldn't have done that for this reason. Well, they were wrong for doing that for this reason. Rather than desiring good in everyone's life. Or we see good in someone else's life and we say that they're being boastful about it. They're boastful about their goodness. Let us not be like society. Let us desire goodness in each one of our lives. The Lord has promised good to us. Romans 8 and 28 says He is working all things together for good for them that love the Lord, for those that are called according to His purpose. If that is the Lord's desire is to work all things together for good in your life, should we not also want all things to be worked together for good in the lives of our brothers and our sisters? And as much as we are able to promote that which is good in the life of our fellow believers. I want goodness for you. I want peace to be present in your home. I want to be peace to be present in your family. I want peace to be present amongst your friends and amongst your coworkers and all those people that you have an opportunity to speak with and come in contact with in your life. It is good for us to help one another towards the good things that God has desired for us. Paul keeps going and he begins to conclude this section over the next seven verses in these very short snippets where he first says to rejoice evermore. I'm not going to spend too much time here. I talked just a few weeks ago about joy and finding joy in the life of the believer. But hear me when I say that the Christian life is one that is to be characterized not just by joy, but by the outward expression of that joy. That there would be rejoicing in the life of the believer. It should be abundant in our hearts in a way that it just spills out into every aspect of our lives. True and constant joy is only found in the life that is lived for Christ. I want to say that again. True and constant joy is only found in the life that is lived for Christ. Paul even went on to tell the Corinthians, so that even when sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I encourage you to go and read that passage in 2 Corinthians. Paul lists a, a number of things that will befall the believer. And each one of them he meets with a yet. He says, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. 
Paul continues here in 1 Thessalonians. He says to pray without ceasing. This is a regular, frequent, and consistent prayer life. Do you know how to have a life that is filled with joy? Paul told us, pray without ceasing. If your life is, is characterized by drama, your life is characterized by bitterness, your life is characterized by discouragement, your life is characterized by unhappiness, how's your prayer life? How is your prayer life? If you are talking to God regularly and you are making it a routine and regular part of your day, you will find that joy is always nearby. Why? Because you are continuing in communication with the source of all joy. And so joy will always befall you. We would rejoice more, Matthew Henry said, if we prayed more. Do you hear that? We would rejoice more if we prayed more. I think that's good instruction for God's people. Organize your prayer life. Are you having a hard time finding time to pray? Schedule it. Make it a point at noon. I'm going to stop and I'm going to pray. At five o'clock, I'm going to stop again and I'm going to pray. At eight o'clock, I'm going to stop again and I'm going to pray. That's what Daniel did, wasn't it? The king put out a decree that no one should pray except for to bow down to the idols he had erected. What did Daniel do? He went back home. And he opened his window pointing towards Jerusalem and he prayed three times a day like he had always done. How organized is your prayer life? And the idea here is not that we should do nothing but pray. The idea instead is that we should do nothing that would hinder our prayers. Prayer is the foundation upon which all these other things are built. I want to close this verse or your thoughts on this verse with this question to you. Where have our prayer warriors gone? Where are they gone? Seems like it's fleeting anymore to hear God's people calling out upon the Lord with earnest hearts desiring from the very depths of their spirits that the Lord would hear them and answer them according to their prayers. Where have our prayer warriors gone? My only belief that I'm left to conclude about where they've gone is that they're not praying frequently enough in their prayer life that it's not visible to those that would see them pray. We need prayer warriors. I encourage you to seek after God and ask Him for His help in your prayer life. He goes on, he says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for your life. If you pray without ceasing, you will never run out of reasons to be thankful unto the Lord. We sing that song sometimes, don't we? I've got so much to thank Him for. So much to praise Him for. You see, He has been so good to me. And when I think about what He's done and where He's brought me from, I've got so much to thank Him for. He says, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for your life. And in everything, you would give thanks. 
Some of you wonder, what is the will of God for my life? Paul has told us in part the will of God for your life is that in all aspects and in every part of your life, you would be giving thanks unto the Lord. This is well-pleasing unto the Lord for Him to hear you give thanks. For Him to hear you give thanks. He says, quench not the Spirit. He says, don't hinder the work of the Spirit. Don't bog down with your busyness the Spirit. Don't suppress the Spirit by your worldliness. Don't depress the Spirit by all of your worry. Instead, a heart filled with joy, a heart that is continuing in prayer, and a heart that is thankful unto the Lord will be one that the Spirit can work through. I've heard this verse all my life being used in the context of our services. That if somebody is here, don't quench the Spirit. If the Lord is leading you to do something, you need to do it. Don't quench the Spirit. I've heard that all of my life. And I want you to know it's true. But I want you to know this. The reason why the Spirit gets quenched is because of our failure to do these other things. If your life is not being lived for the Lord, if you're not continuing with the Lord in prayer, I ask you, how would you expect or why would you expect the Spirit to fill you in worship? Did you hear me? People wonder about where the power has gone with God's people. I will tell you where it has gone. It has gone with the people out into the world as they have found their lives to be too busy with worldly things to pay attention to the true worship of the Lord. And as a result of that, the Spirit is not filling God's people the same way that it has before because the people are so filled with busyness and worldliness themselves. And if you cannot say amen to that, I ask you only to say ouch. Because every word that I just said, I believe with every fiber of my being that it is true. That is profitable. I would love nothing more than for our June revival to just be filled with so much spirit that, that people, that the preachers don't even get up and preach because God's spirit is so effective among his people that lost souls come in and they're so affected by it that they're convicted by the spirit and brought to their knees in repentance, asking the Lord to save them. My friends, the only way that will be what happens is if we, God's people, are filled with the spirit. And if your life is so filled with everything else, I ask you, how would you expect the Spirit to fill your heart? He says, despise not prophesying. The best way for us to interpret this here in, in 2021 is to despise not preaching. To despise not preaching. I believe the preaching of God's Word to be the pinnacle of our services. That's what all the other things lead up to. It's what all the other things point to is to the preaching. This is the, the high point of our services is the preaching. When we think about this, when we think about the preaching, I think sometimes we despise it in ways that we don't realize. We like the preaching. We're glad that there's preaching, but we despise it in that we kind of think of it a little lower than we should. And that's demonstrated by the actions of the people when somebody's preaching. Some of you right now are struggling to stay awake. Some of you right now are struggling to pay attention. We think of it a little less than we should. Some of you are looking around right now seeing who I'm talking about. <laughs> but the reality is that that's true, isn't it? We struggle with that. I struggle with that. 
We were down at Old Union last week, heard three sermons a day, plus a devotional every day. I want you to know by that last sermon, it was getting a little harder to stay awake. You know what I had? I had a pocket of mints in my pocket. I was popping those things one after the other, stay awake. You know what else I was doing? I had my notebook out. And I was taking notes because if I was engaging in the service in that way, my mind was engaged and I was able to fight off that sleep. What am I trying to tell you? If you're struggling with your own individual ability to be able to pay attention and embrace the preaching of God's Word, make an effort to be able to overcome that. Drink more caffeine. Go to bed earlier on a Saturday night. Sit closer. Bring a pocket full of mints. There's a right way to do that and a wrong way. We can talk about that another time. Take notes. And you say, well, Derek, I have a hard time doing that. My eight-year-old daughter has been taking notes. You know how she takes notes? She draws pictures. I don't care how old you are. If that's how you want to take notes, I'm good with it. If you're engaged in the preaching of God's Word, it is good. Despise not prophesying. Despise not the preaching of the Word of God. And he says to prove all things. To prove the things that you hear in preaching. To prove the things that you hear being taught. To go and find out for yourselves if it's true. That's the example of the Bereans, isn't it? They would hear what the apostles said and they would go home and they would study for themselves to see if it's true. That should be what we do as well. If you have a doubt about something that I say, you have a doubt with me that Brother Jeff's teaching or one of these other Sunday school teachers, go back to the book. Go for yourself to see if the things that have been said and taught are true or not. Because this is our source book. This is our manual. This is what we're going from. This is our source of life. So return to the book and test and prove to see whether or not these things are true. He says to prove all things. And then as you do that, as you test, and as you see if the things are true, the things are right, if the things are good, what does he say to do? He says to hold tight, hold fast that which is good. So when you find that good thing, some of you today, I don't know how much you've listened. (laughs) I hope you've listened a lot. Maybe you've only listened a little. But I hope whatever you've heard, there's been something that you've been able to take and grab a hold of. And you say, I'm going to spend some time with that. I'm going to go home. I'm going to think about those things. I'm going to grab a hold of it and and, and spend some time meditating on it and studying about it. When you find that good thing, hold on to it. My biggest blessing that I receive as a preacher, not as a pastor, the biggest blessing that I receive as a preacher is next week when somebody comes in and says, you know, Brother Derek, you said this last week and it has helped me all week long. That's the biggest blessing that I receive. And somebody says, you said something back there that helped me. I just want to tell you I appreciated it. Not of any good thing that I've done, but because there's been something that's been said that's helped you in some way. And grab a hold of that which is good. And finally, he says to abstain all appearance of evil. That is to abstain, to stay away from, to abhor, to shun every form of evil. Remember those warnings I was talking about? Here they come. Listen to me, especially young people. I know that sometimes you hear things that are preached, the things your parents instruct you in, the things other people tell you, and they seem too harsh or they seem too strict. 
and you really just don't want to hear it. You say, what does it matter how I dress? What does it matter how I talk? What does it matter my hobbies or my interests? What does it matter who I hang around with? Does it, what does it matter what I do with my life? It's not impacting that other person. Young people, you can go ahead and agree with me. I know what I'm saying is right. It wasn't too long I was in your same shoes. You don't want to hear those things all the time. Somebody issues those warnings about how you dress or how you talk or about your interests or about your hobbies or about the people you hang around with or the things you do. You really just don't want to hear it. I want to ask you a question. If me and you were to go out, we were to walk down a path in the middle of a forest somewhere, and we were to come across some berries, and we looked at them and they looked like blueberries or maybe they looked like raspberries, and you were hungry and they looked good to the eye, and so you took them and you started to eat them, and you found them to be good and to taste good, we'd say that's all right, wouldn't we? We found something, a good snack for us as we walked through this path in the middle of the forest. Well, let's say that Brother Gary Allen, who's been in a forest a few times, he comes up about us as we're looking at this fruit, and he says, I know those look like blueberries, or I know those look like raspberries, but I want you to know those looks can be deceiving. And if you eat that berry, you're going to die. What would you do? Would you still eat that berry? No, you wouldn't. Some of you might say, well, yeah, I'd still take the chance, and you're just speaking that in your youthful a youthful way of saying that. The reality is none of us would do that. It's not worth the taste of a berry if it could mean death for us, is it? You see, the thing about abstaining from every appearance of evil is that sometimes looks can be deceiving. Sometimes looks can be deceiving. Morale mushroom season is coming up here in a couple of weeks. I'm going to be off in a forest somewhere looking around on the ground trying to find some fungus to eat. That's what I'm going to be doing, if you all wonder about what my life consists of. <laughs> but there is a thing called a false morale. I'm probably saying morale wrong, morale. It looks a lot like the real thing, but if you eat it, it's going to make you real sick. So it is with life. So young people, when, when you hear somebody issue that warning about how you dress or about how you talk or the things you're interested in or, or who you're hanging out with or your hobbies or whatever it might be, I want you to know that what somebody is doing to you and, and, and warning you and helping you and what they're saying is that they're telling you looks can be deceiving. What you think about those things, it might seem alright to you. But especially those that have gone down the way a little bit further than you. And they have a little bit more experience with those berries that we've talked about or those mushrooms that I've talked about. They know how to tell the real thing from the thing that will harm you. What they are doing is telling you looks can be deceiving. So abstain from even the appearance or form of evil. Young people, our words as Christians, as those that have been saved by God's grace, as members of Faith Church, our words are supposed to be clean. Scripture tells us to let no filthy communication leave our mouths. 
Young people, if your language is filled with all sorts of cuss words and curse words, I want you to know that you are not living how the scriptures have told us that God's people are to live. That we are to live with clean mouths, with, with good works. Scripture tells us this thing or two about how we are to adorn ourselves, how we're to dress. That we are to dress in a way that is modest, that covers ourselves up, that presents ourselves as people of the Lord. Chiefly, how that is achieved is that all that our clothes do is point to our faces. Where they can see the smiles on our faces because of what the Lord has done for us. And they can look at our mouths and read our lips as we tell them about Jesus. If your clothing does anything else but point to your face, it's wrong. It's wrong. That goes for girls and guys. I think sometimes people think that it just comes down on the girls when it comes to how you should dress, but I want you to know it affects guys too. If your clothing does anything else but point to your face, you need to reconsider how you're dressing yourself. I came downstairs this morning. My little two-year-old had a little dress that was slipping off her shoulders. Got concerned about it. I was glad that she has a jacket on because you don't have to worry about that. You say, Derek, you're worried about a two-year-old. I'm not worried about a two-year-old. I'm worried about that two-year-old when she's 12. That's what I'm worried about. When you dress in any other way than what points to your face, you are sending out a message. What message are you communicating? I don't think I need to tell you. But I want you to know it's not the message that Christ has left with us, which is the message of the hope of the gospel, which is what our lives are being lived communicating. What about your interests or your hobbies? Some of you enjoy doing things that I don't enjoy. There's nothing wrong with it. I can't skate worth a lick. don't like going skating. don't care for it much. My daughter really enjoys skating. I go with her sometimes because she enjoys it. That's good. There's nothing wrong with with going skating. Some of you enjoy other things. I told you I'm going to go out and enjoy walking in a forest looking for fungus that grows on the ground that I can take home and fry and eat. Probably most of you want to enjoy that. (laughs) But the reality is that we all have these different interests and things that we enjoy. And for the most part, generally speaking, there's nothing wrong with those specific interests. But then those interests do become a problem when they begin to interfere with our life with the Lord. My son Maverick, he enjoys playing video games on his iPad or on his computer and different things. There's nothing wrong with doing those things at times and on occasions. But there is something very wrong when those begin to affect our lives in such a way that we become disobedient to parents. My son knows when I tell him it's time to put his iPad up that it means he's going to put his iPad up or he's going to lose it. It's mine anyway. He's just using what is mine. I don't know if you know this or not. Everything in my house is mine. It's my children's get to use it. I encourage you to treat your children the same way. (laughs) As I look at my pediatrician for assurance. (laughs) But the reality is, is that those things, they can grab and they can consume people in such a way that they pull us away from living lives for the Lord. And it applies to us adults as well. You have interest in things that you enjoy, but if you go too far in those things, you begin to live a life that isn't being lived for the Lord. 
I enjoy playing golf and I enjoy hunting and I enjoy all these different things and aspects of my life, but I want you to know if any one of those things becomes more important than my relationship with the Lord, my relationship with my wife, or my relationship with my children, it's wrong. It's wrong. What are the people you hang around with? Scripture says, do not be deceived. Bad company brings about bad morals. I'm summarizing that verse. I don't like how the King James translates it very well, but I'm telling you the intent of the passage. He says that if you hang out with people that aren't good for you, it's going to impact you. And if you're wondering whether or not the people you hang out with is bad company, you might be the bad company. The reality is that you should be careful who you are associating with in your life. I'm going to tell you something that I mean it 100%. The people that I count as my friends in life, almost to a fault, every single one of them is my brother or my sister in the Lord. I have you very few friends outside of the church. And I am okay with that. I have some good friends outside the church. Don't get me wrong. But my best friends... Those ones that I depend upon through thick and thin, they're in the church. And they help me. They encourage me. They strengthen me when I'm weak. They encourage me when my heart is faint. They warn me when I get a little unruly. You see, these warnings that I'm putting out to you, they're done because we see a life that has lived for the Lord. It is one that I want you to know it is the best life that you will ever live. It is better than any other life you could ever imagine. Listen to me, young people. I've spent time on college campuses. I've been in frat houses. I've been here and there and all over the place. I've been in apartments of of college friends that I knew for a time. There wasn't anything good going on in those rooms or those houses. Weren't places I stayed around long. I'm proud to say that. I couldn't stay around long. I said, this ain't good. I need to remove myself from this place. So the things that I'm telling you, it's not just because of some belief or false ideal that people have in their lives. I've been in your shoes, young person. I've walked where you've walked. I've seen it. I'm telling you what I have found is that a life that is lived for the Lord is far, far better. It's the greatest life you'll ever live. That's why Paul wrote letters like this from the inside of prison cells waiting to die. Waiting to die. And encouraging people anyway. I know that the life that I live for the Lord has brought me up to the brink of death. But I encourage you nonetheless, live for the Lord. Live for the Lord. And so I leave this instruction for you today as Paul left with Thessalonians. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. And everything, give thanks. Quench not the Spirit. Despise not the preaching. Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from all forms of evil. I thank you for listening to me today. I want you to know I mean it with every every ounce of my heart. I tell you I love you. And every word that I've said today has been said out of my love for you. It's been said 
on the basis of my understanding of this book. If you have questions about it, you have things that you're not sure about, I'd love for you to come and talk to me about them. I'd love for me and you to sit down and and look at what God's book says about them. This is where we find our understanding. This is where we find what it is to live for our Lord Jesus Christ. I also want to thank those who joined us live today. I pray that God will bless you wherever you're at, that He'd encourage your hearts.